All right, here we are. The week or the Sunday before Thanksgiving uh, 2020. So, um, congratulations, you made it. You're you're in the home stretch of 2020. And um, today was actually supposed to look a little bit different. We were actually supposed to have some guests from uh, the church plant that we've been um, helping get started and up off the ground in Kansas City, Kansas. And because we went online, um, we decided to push that back to 2021, a little bit later in the, the winter or the spring. We'll get to that later. Uh, but today is all about um, giving thanks in the midst of whatever uh, we find ourselves in. So I thought um, uh, just to start off a little bit by, by telling God and telling each other what we're grateful for. And I actually want us to do this out loud wherever you find yourself, okay? So all throughout Topeka, wherever you're watching this, um, even those who are here still in the room with me that are kind of making this happen, the worship team, the tech team, um, we're gonna say this out loud, okay? So what, what are you thankful for? I just want one or two words. Don't make it a long run-on sentence because then you'll still be talking and everybody else around you will be done and that will be awkward. So just one or two sentence, one or two words. What are you grateful for? We're going to say this out loud together, all right? Even if you're watching this all by yourself at home, let your neighbors know what you're grateful for, all right? So I'm going to count us down, and we're all going to say this together. Ready? One, two, three. (laughs) Good. All right, good, good. There's all kinds of things that we can be grateful for in the midst of crisis, and I, I tried to come up with a clever way to say this, um, a, a, a different way to illustrate it, and I just couldn't. So I'm just going to grab the bull by the horns and and say it. 2020 has not been the easiest year to feel gratitude, has it? It's 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 gratitude is this feeling that we have. I was reading earlier this week that there's no universal facial expression. For, for feeling gratitude, like we have it for anger and sadness and happiness, but there's no, there's no real universal way to communicate that we're, we're grateful. And even if there was, like it's, it's difficult. We don't want to sound, you know, there's plenty for us to be grateful for. We don't want to sound like spoiled little brats, but it's just been a little bit harder for us to figure out or for us to feel gratitude for the last year or so, in all circumstances, as Paul says in First Thessalonians. So that's what I want us to think about for a few minutes. How, how do you give thanks in all circumstances? What's the, what's the Jesus-following, life-giving response when life doesn't go how you want it to, when life doesn't turn out how we think it should? And I got to warn you, the answer to that question, the answer to those questions, they're not emotionally satisfying. Uh, that means when we're done here, you're not going to walk away thinking, I'm so glad we talked about this today. I feel so much better about all the junk that we've had to face. I feel so much better about my future. Like Tim answered all of my questions. He wrapped it up in a nice little pink bow. There, there, there's not that answer. I don't think that answer really exists this side of heaven. But The answer we're going to talk about, I think, is the answer that Scripture gives us. I think it's the answer that we find over and over and over and over throughout Scripture. So I want us to begin with an exercise, and then we're going to get to the text. Um, I want you to imagine, and and many of you don't have to imagine this because you already have them, but I want you to imagine, if you don't, that, that you've had a child, okay? 
and you're given a script for that child's life. Everything that they're going to, to say, everything they're going to do, everything that they're going to experience, everything that's going to be done to them, everything in their life as, and what they're going to experience as they move throughout the stages of their life. Okay, You're given this script for their entire life, and then you're handed a magic eraser. And you can erase anything that you want from their life. You can take out whatever you want. So for instance, um, you know, the script says that your child is going to have a learning disability growing up through grade school. Like reading is going to be difficult for them. And then when they get to high school, they'll have wonderful friends and a great experience. But then, you know, a global pandemic will hit and they'll have to be online for school for eight to 12 months of their high school life. And then they go to college and their sophomore year, they get into a car accident and they're not able to finish college. And then a few years after that, they get married and they have kids and they have a wonderful, um, a wonderful family and they have a wonderful job, but their spouse struggles with anxiety and depression that just kind of puts tension into their marriage. So you have this script as their parent. You have this script and you have 30 minutes to erase as much as you want. What do you erase? Like, what do you take out? How much of all of that junk do you take out with a magic eraser? Like all the setbacks, all the suffering, all the pain, like every crisis, if you could take that out, would you? And, and I realize it's theoretical, but think about it. Would removing every heartache, would removing every setback, every crisis in your child's life cause them to grow to be better, stronger, more true-hearted human being? Is it possible? Is it possible that in some way people actually grow from, maybe even need adversity, maybe even need setback, maybe even can be thankful for crisis in their life? It's obviously, somebody, it's obviously something nobody enjoys or seeks out, but, but is it possible that we need those things to learn about who we are, learn about who God is, learn about how we interact with God? Is it possible to thank God for crisis? We're going to take a look at a very familiar character from the Old Testament that, that faced many crises um, throughout his life. His name is Joseph. You can find his story in Genesis 37 if you want to follow along in your Bible or mobile device. Um, and many of you, again, are familiar with this story, and your temptation will be to jump to the end of it because you know how it ends, okay? But I want us to go really slow through this. I want us to think about some of the things that he faced before we get to the end. All right. So when we meet um, Joseph, life is pretty good. Things are going well for him. We'll pick it up in the second part of verse two of Genesis 37. It says this, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. <laughs> Isn't it really, really good to know that your kids aren't that much different from the heroes of the faith? Joseph was a tattletale. Joseph was, was a goody two-shoe. Or maybe Joseph was just the youngest. Maybe he was just, he was just the youngest child. Maybe you got some, some, you know, a youngest child sitting around you. Make sure you look at them right now and just care for them, love them, give them a little mommy rub on the back if you need to, okay? Because they're the youngest child. 
It's different for the youngest child than it is for everybody else. Back to the story, okay? Verse three. Now Israel, that's Joseph's dad. God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. Now just those those couple sentences, we get a peek into Joseph's family dynamics. And, And I've said this before, but if you think your family is messed up, your family has got nothing on this family. I'm not going to get into all the details. You can read them for yourself. But, but the Maury Povich show has nothing on this family. But here's, here, here's the bottom line, what we just read. Joseph is the favorite son of the favorite wife, which means, yes, he had more than one. Joseph is the favorite son of the favorite wife. He's the apple of his daddy's eye. He's got, he's got all the attention. He can do no wrong. And to show his affection for his son, his dad gives him this awesome coat, right? Now, I grew up hearing the King James version of this story, so it's a coat of many colors, not an ornate robe. That sounds French, so that's not what I'm going to call it. It's a coat of many colors, right? So here's Joseph, 17 years old, had everything going for him. It's summertime, loving, living's easy, daddy's rich, mama's good looking, and, and he, he has the coat to prove it. And then the soundtrack changes. The soundtrack to his story, the soundtrack to his life changes. Uh, the fact that Joseph is dad's favorite, Joseph's brothers hate him because of it. They can't stand him. They couldn't speak a good word in front of him or about him. They, they didn't even want to be around him. And as you kind of read the story, you start to see Joseph's a little bit clueless about this. One day he has a dream and he decides to tell his brothers about it. Verse six, he said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Isn't that a cool dream, guys? <laughs> And, and, and you kind of wonder, is he slow? Is he arrogant? Is, is, is he naive? You don't know. Look at his brother's response. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. And this is the point where you're thinking, Joseph, you just zip it, lock it, put it in your pocket, be quiet, stop talking. Verse nine, then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Man, I sure love dreams. Don't you guys love dreams? And again, you think, is he, is he, is he asking for it? Is he naive? Is he arrogant? He just, he just needs to be quiet. I mean, his dad, his dad even gets a little bit irked with him and tells him to stop. And then, this is the part of the story where it goes even worse. One day, Joseph sets out to where his brothers were tending the flocks, and and when his brothers see Joseph coming, Scripture says they plotted to kill him. They plotted to kill him. All that anger, all that resentment comes to a boiling point. But before he gets there, the oldest son, the responsible one, Reuben, convinces his brothers, no, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery and fake his death because that's better than actually killing him. And that's what they do. They throw Joseph into a cistern. They take that coat that he got from his father. They rip it up. 
They put animal blood on it. They take it back to dad after they've sold him into slavery. They say, dad, sorry, your favorite son, Joseph, is, is dead. And literally, in the span of a few hours, Joseph loses his status, his home, his security, his family, his culture, his future, his friends, everything gone within just a few hours. I mean, if he had a problem before this, if things got out of hand, he could just run to dad for security. Where's his security now? Before this, if you were to ask him, you know, who are you? He would say, I'm the favorite son of the favorite wife and I've got the coat to prove it. Where's his identity now? Before this, if you'd ask him about his dreams, he would say, I'm gonna be the greatest leader of my family. They're all gonna bow before me. What does he have to dream about now? See, I think what happened to Joseph is what has happened to a lot of people over the last few months. The, the majority of the time, we live life in what we think of as normal, right? Like circumstances go on about how we expect them to do. We have our routines, our comings, our goings. Everything is normal because I have this money and I have this family and I have this job and I have these abilities. I have these talents. I have this schedule and it's just going to go on and on and on like this day after day after day after day. And all of a sudden, we're presented with a crisis outside of our control. And, and there is no such thing as normal anymore. There is no such thing as solid. Maybe, maybe you lose a job or your job becomes a whole lot less secure. You lose someone you love or, you know, losing someone you love seems a whole lot more like a reality. There's strain on your marriage like there wasn't before. You lose any sense of normalcy or routine or it becomes much less certain than it was before. All of a sudden, normal goes out the window. And everything we've counted on, the stuff, the people, the circumstances, all that stuff we expected to always be there either evaporates or we start to realize maybe that won't always be there. Maybe that won't always be solid. And we ask the same questions everybody else asks. And they're like, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with the questions. Why me? Why now? Why like this? I think those are all normal responses. But eventually, I think you come to the question behind the question, which is, if what I thought was secure isn't, what do I stand on now? If what I thought was secure isn't, what do I stand on now? A few years ago, I was uh, playing golf over in Lawrence. I'd hit my first shot on a hole and was, was going to get my clubs and, and walk to the next shot. And I stepped off of the tee box and I stepped onto this, I don't know how else to say it, but this water bubble in the grass. It was just spongy and it, 10 feet by 10 feet, I don't know, but it it was like this little earth trampoline, and I actually started jumping up and down on it. People around me thought I was probably crazy, but I was trying to pop it. I was trying to get the water out of it, and I couldn't do it. It just, it just would not pop, whatever. I, I thought it was terra firma. It was actually terra spongy. I'd never experienced that before. Never, never seen it before, but I, I couldn't break through, and it messed with me a little bit for the rest of the day. Whenever I stepped, I didn't know if I was going to step on something secure or if it was going to be one of those one of those water pockets. 
What do you do when you find out something you've always thought was solid and immovable isn't? What, what do you do? It, it, just, it just messes with you, right? And, and the strangest thing happens to Joseph because he has a new reality. His world becomes really spongy really quick and he's not standing on solid ground anymore. He's lost everything. Nobody cares that he's daddy's favorite. Nobody cares about his dreams. He's penniless, powerless. Uh, he's, he's a slave in the house of a man named Potiphar. What does Joseph have left to stand on? And, and we, we see one thing. There's one thing that he has left to stand on. And this is, this is an amazing truth that I wish we had more time to kind of unpack. But you see this all throughout Joseph's story. Look at this, Genesis 39 two. The Lord was with Joseph. <laughs> the Lord was with Joseph. He wakes up in a new bed, in a new house, a new culture, no prospects, no explanation, just this one thing. The Lord was with Joseph. What must that have been like for him? What, what was it like to have lost everything but to find to sense, to know that God was with him. And you say, Tim, how in the world do you know that God was with him? I, I, I don't know how, all I know is what we're told. The Lord was with Joseph. Maybe Joseph didn't even know the Lord was with him. Maybe the author is just looking back on his life and saying the Lord was obviously with Joseph. Maybe Joseph didn't even understand in that moment, in that season, that the Lord was with him. But there it is. The Lord was with Joseph. And because God was with him, he didn't have any more trouble, right? I mean, everything works out great at Potiphar's house. He gets along with Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar. He lives happily ever after because God was with him, right? No, not so much. He's falsely accused. He's lied about. And he finds himself in prison. Another new reality for Joseph. But when he's in prison... The strangest thing happens again. Look at the middle of verse 20. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. Strangest things happen to people in slavery, people in prison, people who've been wrongly accused, people who've lost everything, people who are facing things they've never faced before. They find that somehow, in some way, that God can still be with you in those moments. Corey Tinboom captures this idea better than I think anybody ever has, and, and not just because of the words that she says, but because of what she experienced while she was saying them. She, she writes these words from a Nazi death camp. So just put yourself there. Try to imagine yourself there. And here's what she says. No pit is so deep that he is not deeper still. With Jesus, even in our darkest moments, the best remains and the very best is yet to be. <laughs> no matter how deep the pit, he is deeper still. There's no amount of darkness. There's no amount of crises or loss that he can't find you. And Joseph, 
Joseph found himself thrown into a cistern, sold into slavery by his own family, falsely accused and eventually in prison, and yet here it is. God was with him. God was with Joseph, which is the non-emotionally satisfying answer. It's not satisfying, but it's the answer we're promised. That in moments, in days, in, in seasons, even an entire year of crises, we can be grateful because God is with us. And that is enough. That's enough. Jesus has come. He's given us his spirit as comfort and guide. God is with us. We're going to start talking about that life-altering, world-changing event next week when we start our Advent series. But we can be grateful. We can be thankful in the midst of whatever because God is with us no matter how deep the pit, God is deeper still. I think, I think there's something else in Joseph's story that points to this very best that is yet to be that Corey Ten Boom talked about. He, here he is, 17 years old, got the world by a string, goes through all of these things that, that most 17-year-olds wouldn't be able to handle. He finds out that God was still with him through it all, and he comes out on the other side better than he was before, right? This is the part of the story we want to rush to. He finds himself second in command in all of Egypt, the most, second most powerful man in Egypt. He's reunited with his family, and because of his position, he gets to provide for them for the rest of their lives. And, and, and the, the emotion that comes out of Joseph is understandable, but it's kind of shocking at the same time. Because he had every right to distance himself from his family. He had every right to punish them and make, especially his brothers, make their life miserable because of how they made his life miserable. But, but he gets to see his family for the first time in 20 years. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And the text tells us that he has to turn away from them because he begins to weep. And, and, and at one point he weeps so loudly that all the Egyptians around him here, even Pharaoh's house hears about it later. He throws his arms around his younger brother Benjamin and weeps. He, 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 he kisses all of his brothers and weeps over them. He sees his father for the first time in decades and just weeps and weeps and weeps and weeps and weeps. More tears than any other character in Scripture. And, and a lot of scholars will, will point to Joseph as a reflection of Jesus. Joseph, like Jesus, was betrayed by those close to him. And Joseph, like Jesus, was the wounded healer. He was the one through God's grace and God's presence and God's foresight was, was allowed. God used him to save Egypt from the famine. And then here's this other amazing thought that we see from Jesus too, right? Anybody know the shortest verse in the Bible? John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And so here's the thought that I want to leave with you, I want to leave with us as we enter into this week of Thanksgiving. In Jesus, we have a God who cries. 
in Jesus, we have a God who cries. I don't know of any other religion. I don't know of any other belief system that has a God who cries. But in Jesus, we have a God who cries. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but it's not very many people that you'll allow to wipe away your tears, right? Like I can think of two or three people in my life that have ever wiped away my tears. It's such a personal, intimate moment to let somebody do that. But this thought that, that God is with us in crisis isn't real emotionally satisfying, but there is coming a day when we will be emotionally satisfied. John says in the last book of the Bible that there's coming a day when not only will God be with us, but we will be with him. And what does John say he's going to do? He's, he's going to wipe away every tear. And this is the promise. This is the promise that we've been given. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, one day, just imagine this with me, one day, we will stand before God and with all the gentleness and compassion and tenderness in the universe, the God who made all things will wipe every tear from our eye. No more crying. <laughs> no more crisis. We will be emotionally satisfied forever. But our hope right now in the midst of crisis and every other crisis we will ever face moving forward is that God is with us. No matter how deep the pit, he is deeper still. So as we approach a week where we give thanks, let's be people who do the difficult but hopeful work of thanking God in the midst of crisis. Let's be people who don't look for the emotionally satisfying answer right now, but we look to the day where we will be emotionally satisfied. Because if nothing else, he's with us in the midst of it. And that is enough. It's enough. I wanna pray for you. And then I just want the worship team to sing this song over us as we move into Thanksgiving. So would you pray with me? I believe that, that, that our Heavenly Father right now would want you to know whatever it is you're facing, whatever setback, whatever difficulty, whatever worry, whatever fear, whatever you may have lost or you're afraid of losing, that you're not alone. That God would say to you right now, I'm with you. There's not a tear that has come from your eye from your first day to this day that I don't know about that I don't care about, and one day the last tear will come and I will wipe it away. I will set everything right. Heavenly Father, there, there are people who need your healing touch right now, sadness, discouragement, fear about tomorrow, uncertainty about the future. Jesus, would you whisper to them? Just as I was with Joseph, I'm with you right now. I'm with you with you. Father, thank you that we have such a hope for today and even more for tomorrow. Would you burn that truth into our minds that you're with us and one day we'll be with you. 
ask it all in Jesus' name.